Hi, I'm Tor, and I'm here to share secrets. Today, I'm sharing secrets with Chow Wang of the DeFi Alliance. Chow's Twitter bio describes him as semi-retired, uh, but as far as I can tell, he's anything but. He's constantly sharing very intelligent thoughts around decentralized finance in particular, but all aspects of the blockchain space. And he's seen a thing or two. Uh, and now with the DeFi Alliance, he's helping bring growth to a space that badly needs to find its next phase of growth and global adoption in order to move from billions, maybe to trillions of value. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with Chow. We don't agree on everything, but the things that we do agree on, I think are particularly interesting. And the things that we don't agree on, um, I'm curious to see who you feel is right. Uh, but we both definitely feel that privacy is going to have a role to play in whatever's next for DeFi and beyond. So without any further ado, uh, here is my conversation with Chow Wang. Chow, thank you so much for agreeing to share some secrets with me. I am psyched to talk to you, man. Yo, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. So let's start at the very beginning uh although this is no secret uh who are you and actually what qualifies you i'm very familiar with your credentials and qualifications uh but what qualifies you to talk credibly about crypto blockchain DeFi? why should people be interested in your secrets <laughs> um i'm just really uh passionate about this stuff i i just i literally live and breathe in, in this stuff, um, I guess, full-time since 2017. Uh, but even before that, I, I've always been involved with the crypto community on the side uh, as early as you know 2012. Uh, back then, I was, uh, like yourself, I was a trader. I was an algo trader. And uh, <laughs> I guess we're both in Chicago mm -hmm. as well. Um, but I did that for uh, almost 10 years. Um, you know, the kind of trading that I did was highly technical. It's always been at the intersection of finance and technology. So something like Bitcoin and Ethereum are things that naturally, uh, you know, attracted me. Um, so, you know, I, I've just been uh, fairly deep in this space for, for many years. Uh, 2017, or I guess 2018 started building Masari, which some of you might know, which is, uh, I guess, can think of it as a Bloomberg for crypto. So we provide data and research um, as part of the founding team uh, and ran product, uh, the engineering, um, and spent a couple, couple of years there. Um, earlier this year, I transitioned out. And since then, I've been pretty much uh, focused on managing my own money, but mostly uh, in, in crypto. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and I lead the DeFi lines. Uh, so, you know, we are a uh, sort of an alliance of uh, some of the top uh, DeFi startups, uh, investors, liquidity providers, and uh, our goal is to help, um, you know, DeFi startups. Um, and that's how I see a bunch of uh, new products that are starting in the DeFi space. Yeah, we are definitely going to get a chance to talk about the DeFi Alliance, its mission, your involvement. Uh, and I'm, I'm super excited to, to dig into a lot of the stuff that you have worked on and that you have built. But uh, I want to start with Twitter. <laughs> uh, because you, you tweet a lot and you leak alpha all over the place. And I think that that's super cool. Uh, somebody who's that open with their thoughts. As you said, like you're in the position where you're actually putting your money where your mouth is with a lot of the predictions you're making, the commentary that you're providing. This isn't just idle and, and it's not as though... 
you have only one sort of position that you're dogmatic about. Like I do find you to be one of those people who is very flexible with their thinking about the trajectory of growth the space is going to take. Uh, so I love your tweets, but there's probably more than a few secrets that you've learned between trading, researching, building, investing that don't fit in a tweet, but might fit in a 40 minute podcast. So mm -hmm. what's something that you've learned slightly longer than a tweet and something that you strongly believe that you think a lot of people in the cryptocurrency space would disagree with even right now like where do you find yourself still kind of on the outside convincing people of something that you really believe that they seem to not so much believe or even reject yeah this is a really good question this is the classic peter Thiel question right i have a few um but i guess they're generally rejected by the super dogmatic people um you know you know, number one, I don't think the the layer one smart contract platforms, like their tokens, their native tokens, will accrue a lot of value. Um, you know, I th I th we can go very deep into that question. I wanna I wanna talk another one afterwards, but for this one, just very quickly, um, I don't think ever since the rise of stablecoins, um, it's going to be very hard for these native L1 tokens to accrue a lot of value, especially for Ether. It's, very, it's going to be very hard to break all-time high, uh, which was like 1400 uh, back in, uh, I guess, early 2018. Um, and that, that is main, mainly because back in the day, Ether was really money. Like Ether was being used for, uh, I guess, buying ICOs, right? By definition, it was being used as money. But nowadays, with the rise of stablecoins, stablecoins actually become the primary um, reserve currency on these, uh, on these smart contract platforms. So um, I think, you know, a lot of the Ethereum maximalists won't like this, but it's something I strongly believe in. Uh, that said, I, you know, I'm still very, very bullish on Ether, right? I'm, I think it's going to, over a period of, I guess, 10 years, right, it's going to go up. Uh, but I just don't think that it's going to go up uh, as quickly, as sharply as it did in 2017. It's going to be very hard. But anyway, so this is not really interesting. I, I, like, I, I shared this thought before on, on Twitter. But I guess something that's super relevant right now, uh, super timely, is is DeFi, right? Um, like, I, I don't I don't see a lot of people talk about um, how I think what DeFi is really about. I think what DeFi is really about is user experience. It's vastly superior user experience. I don't think we're there yet, right? Like DeFi isn't isn't as good in many ways as De as CFI, mm -hmm. but ultimately it's. DeFi is really about it's not, DeFi is not really about decentralization or right now it's not really about. Oh, they shouldn't have put it in the name then. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No. Exactly. I mean, it's it's not really about banking the bank or any of that. Uh, it's really about user experience. Hmm. And the reason why I see that is because um, you know you hear a lot about uh, when people say uh, DeFi is you know entire regulations. Well, some people say that, right? Like, people, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. DeFi is anti-regulations, uh, no KYC. You know, one of the main, uh, I guess, benefits of DeFi is no KYC. But what that really is, is user experience. The reason why those regulations are so painful is because they create a really bad onboarding process, onboarding experience, right? Like, you have to go through, like, a 10 steps when you sign up for Coinbase, right? And when you withdraw money from Coinbase, 
you have to go through a, a, a fairly long, like, you know, vetting process, right, or a wait period. And, you know, these the centralized platforms, they, they will, they often also uh, lose your uh, personal data, right, personal hmm. privacy. And then, uh, you know, they check your transactions. Uh, sometimes they reject your transactions. Uh, those are just really bad user experience. And I think what that really, what DeFi really fixes is, is those user experience problems by minimizing um, regulatory attack services. We will definitely get a chance to talk about what, to what extent DeFi actually protects privacy versus violates privacy. Yeah. But, but as, yeah. as we know, it's, it's, uh, everything is relative, and we can agree that centralized platforms are also not really a privacy solution to date. So placing that aside for a moment, uh, I, I really like this insight around DeFi not necessarily standing for decentralized or democratized, which is something that uh, I've talked about before, but maybe it is more the permissionless nature of DeFi that's attracting people. So are, are, are we able to see then a connection between like, you, we're really saying that this permissionlessness and l losing the friction of being needing to interact with centralized entities is that's part of like a better user experience is that permissionless nature of interaction. Is that fair to say? I, I think I agree with that. Uh, I 100% agree with that, except I usually don't like to use the word permissionless or decentralized mm -hmm. because um, I, I, I like talking about user experience because that's what really people care about, like the average person cares about, people who are not in, in crypto. When you say the word permissionless to them or decentralized to them, number one, they don't know what that means. Number two, they don't give a shit about it. Mm -hmm. um, all they care about is a good experience and making money. So that's why I like talking about um, user experience. But what really enables a better user experience is, to your point, the permissionlessness and sometimes the decentralization. I think if you're defining a good user experience as being able to make as much money as possible, as fast as possible, with as much leverage as possible, uh, and I think that that's a fair definition for a lot of people in the DeFi space, that's their optimal user experience, uh, huh. then I can definitely see the link between user experience and adoption to date in yep. the DeFi space. So let's talk for a second about DeFi adoption and DeFi growth. Because people seem to agree, whether they, can, whether they can agree on the definition of DeFi or the definition of decentralized or permissionless or whatever, people seem to agree that it's growing to some extent. But my question for you is, what is the correct way to measure that growth? Because metrics matter, and metrics are what we end up optimizing for and communicating. And everywhere I see this idea of total value locked or total active addresses, all these like competing metrics that try to quantify the growth and adoption of DeFi. Do those metrics mean anything to you? Or what do you think would be the best metric today to measure the growth and adoption of DeFi? Yeah, I guess my answer is super generic. Um, you know, this has nothing to do with DeFi, right? Like my answer is just that in general, you want to look, at, you want to triangulate uh, different metrics. There's no one, there's never one single metric that tells the entire story. So of course, TVL makes sense. Uh, it 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 tells part of the story, but you also want to look at maybe uh, you know daily active users, right? Because TVL uh, TV, TVL growth could just mean that. Uh, you have a bunch of whales that put in more money, mm -hmm. but without growing the, the total user base. Right. So uh, 
so yeah, you want to look at TBL, but you also want to look at maybe unique addresses, um, trading volume, right? Trading volume is not necessarily TBL. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to look at potentially uh, the fees generated um, mm-hmm. by the various protocols, because the, the, if you look at the total fees, uh, well, total fees growing means people valuing um, this, right. this uh, ecosystem more and more. Um, so yeah, so you want to look at a, a a variety of, of uh, metrics. I'll submit something to you. Tell me what you think. Uh, I like the idea of honest signals, that there's metrics that you can't fake that are expensive to fake. And I do think to a large extent fees, like on-chain fees, are a very good honest signal because you have to pay the fees or somebody has to pay the fees. And generally speaking, they're, they're going to miners, they're going to validators, they're, they're not going to you necessarily but a lot of these other metrics that we're talking about that we're mentioning do seem gameable like you can game tvl as a whale you can game total active users if you equate a user with an address by generating a lot of addresses so do you do you think that currently metrics are being gamed in the DeFi space and if they are or if they aren't why I don't have a ton of insight into that. Like, why would they be, what is the incentive for people to gain those metrics? I mean, obviously I can see people gain, like if people do some, if, if a product does something along the lines of Uniswap, right? Like where they uh, retroactively airdrop uh, tokens to uh, every address. Yeah, then I see incentives for people to gain the, the addresses. But mm-hmm. other than that, like what are the incentives for, for gaining those? Well, what's the incentive for gaming metrics in the centralized exchange world, for example? Like, if what's the incentive to oh, lie to coin market cap? There's there's very strong incentive. So I'm mean, similarly the projects, the projects themselves uh, gaming those, those the metrics. projects, the platforms, but maybe even like the whales on those platforms who may have their own exposure to the product because they they hold yep. a lot of its governance tokens, for example. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think a couple months ago when we were in the bull market and people just use like the TVL multiple as their main valuation metric. Back, mm-hmm. back, back at that point, I think, I wouldn't be surprised if, if the whales manipulated the, the TVL metric, right? It's, right. It's, it's very reasonable because that's what everyone looks at. So, so why not? But right now, I kind of doubt it. Mm-hmm. I think uh, there's less incentive because people just, <laughs> I mean, in, in a bull market, people just find a bunch of excuses for valuing their, their tokens, right? Yeah. But in a bear market, the only thing that matters is the price action. So yeah. Now keep in mind, somebody could be listening to this episode anytime in the next few months when, when the bull market is back on, because it seems to be we're on like weekly cycles here, not yearly cycles anymore when it comes to the DeFi markets. It's, it's a very easy switch to flip. So let's say that somebody's listening to this in a couple months, you know, near the end of 2020, and it's a DeFi bull market again. What do you think... First of all, what what made the bull market turn on again? What flipped the switch? What do you, what's most likely? And then second, if the flip if the switch flips on again, where do you expect to see that growth reflected? Either which metrics do you expect to see growing fastest or what types of projects do you think will be gaining the most? Yeah, good good question. Um I think a lot of people, like a very smart investor in, in this space, they like uh, talking about the fundamentals. Um, but when it comes to uh, 
cycles, like these sh very short-term, you know, multi-month uh, um, hype cycles, I don't think that fundamentals really matter. Mm -hmm. um, they matter to the extent that um, a good narrative has to be based on uh, some strong fundamentals. But the strong fundamentals doesn't always lead to, um, you know, price action. Mm -hmm. So the consequence of that observation is um, there might be a couple of um, catalysts for the next uh, bull market, mm -hmm. which are entirely independent of fundamentals. Pro to be fair, like to be honest, like fundamentals have been improving over the last month, even though the prices have been going down, right? Like there's still a lot of new. Uh, uh, features, new products, and TVL has been going up, and so on and so forth. But prices have been going down. Mm -hmm. So for the next cycle, I think um, I can see two scenarios. Uh, one is Bitcoin breaking 14k. Uh, I don't think a lot of DeFi DeFi bros uh, <laughs> really want to admit that, but uh, Bitcoin is king, right? So if Bitcoin breaks 14k, we're going to see a new, a lot, uh, a lot more new uh, retail inflow. So 14k and 20k are, are super like important uh, psychological uh, uh, price points uh, for retail. So uh, if Bitcoin breaks 14k, I think that can catalyze a new DeFi bull market. Because if that happens, then DeFi is just a higher beta um, BTC, at least for in, in the in the very short term. Uh, so that's one scenario. Another one is just uh, the the DeFi uh, investors capitulate, but that should take. Um, probably a couple more months. Like, I don't think it'll happen tomorrow, to be honest, because it took DeFi maybe three months, three to six months to go 10X. So normally I would expect around the same time for it to really find the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so those are the two scenarios that I see. Um, but in terms of fundamentals, like there's always improving fundamentals, right? Like, but I don't think these are catalysts for the next bull market. Like for instance, like there's, a lot of L2s, uh, or I guess a lot of projects shifting, shifting to L2s in the coming months. Mm -hmm. So L2s are becoming real. Uh, obviously, it's good in the long term for long term fundamentals, but it doesn't mean that these are catalysts for, for a bull market. Okay. I, I think all of that is really, really great insight. And I agree with you that people sort of forget that the same because you you get into these cycles also where the bitcoin maximalists are bashing the DeFi ecosystem and now the DeFi maximalists are laughing at people who just hold like a, a like a dead weight coin that doesn't somehow yield a thousand percent apy like we get into those cycles and then people kind of forget that it swings both ways and realistically bitcoin has led most of if not all of the previous like large bull cycles in the crypto space it's good to keep in mind it's good to remember history but as you're saying like growth can come from a lot of places uh and, and DeFi is exciting for a lot of fundamental reasons it's just a question of whether fundamentals end up turning into momentum and momentum tends to arise not from as you said like fundamentals in a vacuum but from the narratives that form around those fundamentals so let's mm -hmm. talk a little bit about some of the missing fundamentals and some of the fundal fundamentally missing narratives in the mm -hmm. DeFi space. Because people seem to agree, no matter how big DeFi is now, whatever metric you choose, it can get a lot bigger. So mm -hmm. what's missing in the DeFi space? What are the big narratives that haven't even had their day in the sun yet? What are the fundamental innovations that have yet to hit the market 
that you think would be massive fundamental catalysts for growth, regardless of how long it took for that to translate into price? Man, you ask really good questions. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm having a lot of fun because you are making me think right now, think really hard right now. Um, I think that I think that we're missing some very important products in DeFi. Hmm. Um, because so far, all the the vast majority of DeFi products have been serving speculative activities, right? Whether it's uh, decentralized exchanges or lending platforms or insurance. Right now, all the users are um, uh, are traders. The vast majority of them are traders. Um, so, I mean, we got to be honest with ourselves. Like DeFi right now is a global decentralized casino, shitcoin casino. It, it is what it is. Um, but it doesn't mean that you won't become something bigger in the future. And in order to become something bigger in the future, I think we're missing a uh, couple of really important products. And these products are, number one, under collateralized lending. I think it's really, really important. Uh, the fact that you can borrow money from this, this new financial ecosystem when you have nothing and use that money to start a venture, start a business, right? That's like, that's like the cornerstone of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there are, there, are, there are projects that are working on this. Uh, Ave is working on this, and there are some new startups working on this. Uh, but we really need to see this uh, particular product uh, coming to fruition uh, in order for DeFi to reach the next 100 million users. Um, because otherwise, you know, obviously, like you know, with speculation, sure, speculation will increase the pie as well because people love making money, people love gambling, but it's going to slow. Uh, we're not going to see a, a big uh, staircasing increase in terms of like users. The last one we saw, the last big innovation we saw in DeFi was, for better or for worse, um, stablecoins, right? USDT and USDC. I mean, arguably, uh, some some people will argue that th these are not necessarily decentralized. I mean, they're not, but they are a very critical component of DeFi right now, and. Stablecoins were really, really important in the sense that people actually use stablecoin for a bunch of, uh, well, number one for store value and number two potentially for medium exchange. So like a lot of venture firms nowadays, they uh, they're funded uh, or startups startups are DeFi startups are funded in USDC nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. So that's very important. Uh, we want to see more um, important products like. Uh, stablecoins in the in, in the in the future in order to, to get more users. Now, uh, a very a closely related product that is missing today um, is I think um, synthetic assets. Right. Mm. Um, stablecoins are basically a synthetic U.S. dollar. Right. Uh, and it is U.S. dollar is simply the first, the most obvious application of synthetic assets because U.S. dollar is the most important asset in the world, for better or for worse. Um, so I think we're going to see more synthetic assets in the future. So you know, obviously, currently we have synthetics, but um, I think we're going to see more. We're going to see more liquidity in those synthetic assets, uh, basically providing access to people around the world um, to high-quality assets like U.S. equities, uh, like gold. In a way that people no longer have to use their, um, you know, outdated brokerage accounts. That that's something that's super valuable for me personally. You know, like the the, the brokerage accounts in the U.S. are like really painful to use. Like 
there, it, it takes 20 steps to open an account and it takes many days to transfer funds from one to another. Um, so this type of product, I think is not only useful for emerging markets, but also for people um, in the US, for instance. So anyway, to summarize, uh, synthetic assets and under collateralized lending, these are like super important products that can really get us to the next uh, 10, 20 mil, um, 10, 100 million users. I think that those are excellent examples of products. Now, I will submit to you, uh, it's probably something you saw coming because you know what I do and you know what this podcast is, um, is the concept of privacy as a fundamental enabler of DeFi, but also specifically of these products that you're mentioning. For example, under collateralized lending, I think, requires some level of privacy protection for the borrower and also potentially for the lender uh, in that you could qualify for credit via your on-chain activities, but you do not wish to expose your on-chain activities to everybody in the ecosystem, only to potentially the lender. Secondly, when you talk about stable coins and synthetic assets, I submit that privacy is essential to the adoption of both more broadly, unless you're comfortable with every single one of your dollar-based transactions being public, because right now we have private bank accounts, private credit cards, where it's it's shared only with a small number, uh, you know, just between you and your credit card company, just between you and your bank until they resell it to somebody. But in blockchain, everything is public to everybody all the time. There is no choice on the part of the user. So something that Secret Network has looked to enable is things like under collateralized lending via privacy, but also private stable coins, but also private by default, private by design, synthetic assets. Do you agree that there is a strong need for privacy in these types of products if we're going to see mass adoption? Or alternatively, do you think that it's a nice to have, but maybe not required for global adoption or in the most, uh, I would say, in, your, in the big I disagree with you tour case, is privacy actually detrimental to growth and adoption? This is a really tough question. I'm speaking from personal experience. I think privacy is extremely important for me. Um, I mean, in, in many ways, uh, DeFi isn't as private as um, traditional financial services, right? Like if you make a trade on interactive brokers, only interactive brokers can see your trades or the government if they want to. But yeah, it's not also a concern. <laughs> but it's not immediately uh, observable by the by the general public. Mm -hmm. But if I do a trade on Uniswap, people can dox me. Oh yeah. I don't want I don't want that to happen, right? I mean it's especially I mean if you're I guess if you're a um, average person, um, you may or may not care about your privacy, but the moment you start trading bigger and bigger, like as you accrue your wealth, um, privacy is going to become more important to you. Um, I guess for me, for me personally, it's super important. I, I would love to use a private Uniswap today if, if it existed. Mm. Well, if you're listening to this in two months, we'll, we'll maybe we'll circle back to that topic. Because, uh, <laughs> but but that aside, you're raising an interesting point. Then, so maybe there's a connection between liquidity and privacy. Because as you're saying, maybe the average user doesn't care enough about privacy to seek out these types of products at any cost. But as a larger user of these platforms, whether it's you as a well-capitalized individual or 
one of the more established liquidity providers in the DeFi ecosystem, you, you might care a lot about your privacy. And it's your liquidity, it's your large size moving between all of these DeFi platforms that users care about because liquidity is essential to the user experience. You know, more liquidity means less slippage. It, it just means that, you, you, as we said, if user experience is making a lot of money or at least having access to the most products, the most user choice, then liquidity is absolutely everything. So do you think there's a relationship then between bringing privacy to DeFi and maximizing liquidity even before potentially we're talking about maximizing the individual number of users who are adopting these platforms? I think potentially, yes. Um, I mean, if you look at what happened this morning, I guess not uh, yesterday, right? With, uh, well, no, it was this morning. Uh, SBF <laughs> got doxxed. Mm, yep. And um, uh, for shorting, uh, what, Wi-Fi? Was it Wi-Fi? I mean, it the, the rumor is probably true. I think he admitted it. Uh, but basically what he did was he, he used Cream, I think, mm -hmm. which is a landing platform to borrow a bunch of um, uh, Wi-Fi and, and short it mm -hmm. um, all the way to like 13,000. 13, and then um, he, uh, he probably was unwinding his short this morning because people saw that he was paying back his loans. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, for, for a whale like SBF, like this is just crazy. Like... I, if I were SPF, I don't want people to see this. Right. It's just, it's annoying. Like, uh, I, you know, obviously, like, you shouldn't hate on SPF for shorting, for being on the other side of your trade. But um, it's important for, for him, for someone like himself to, to provide his privacy. So absolutely, I think privacy will be at least somewhat uh, correlated with liquidity. Right? Like, if there was mm -hmm. a privacy-oriented uh, landing plan platform today, I would assume that someone like SPF would use that over Cream. So 100%. Yeah, and if you look at what happened after the Uniswap airdrop, the addresses that received, the like the airdrop itself was sort of a dox because you could immediately see who had received the largest balances. And yeah. that that's not even something that necessarily the user did wrong or right, but maybe they didn't anticipate that it was so easy to... You know, like you, you, you see what I'm saying. It's it, it just comes back to what are users willing to tolerate, and the users who are the biggest like volume users of these platforms who provide and take the most liquidity, that seems to be who's going to gain the most value from these types of fundamental solutions coming available. And and I think that they will power, as you're saying, the, the next key products for DeFi growth that will get. Uh, hopefully in the millions of users adopting them in the near future. Yeah, for sure. So now let's talk about, as promised at the beginning, uh, something very specific uh, and something very personal to you, which is the DeFi Alliance. I think we're there. Uh, mm -hmm. People probably are wondering, what is the DeFi Alliance? Who Who is allied within the Alliance? <laughs> what yeah. is the mission of the Alliance? And then like, how are you involved or how did you choose to get involved with this effort? Like, What were you hoping to bring, learn, develop, grow as part of the effort? Yeah, so DeFi Alliance is a, um, it's a very loose um, term. Uh, it's, it's just a bunch of uh, um, founders in the DeFi space, uh, investors, uh, traditional trading firms mm -hmm. um, and legal experts that come together and and help new startups in the DeFi space. It, it's really a it, the the goal is really about 
um, overcome, helping the startups overcome, um, I guess, challenges in the early stage of their their product in uh, product development. Um, and um, the Defi Alliance has launched a couple of products or initiatives so far. Uh, the first one was an, an accelerator program. So you can think of it as a YC, Y Combinator for DeFi, mm-hmm. where um, you know, the mentors provide knowledge, mentorship, uh, and potentially liquidity uh, to the startups uh, that, that are selected for, for this program. Um, another in- initiative is what we call the liquidity launchpad, um, where um, if a DeFi startup wants to launch a, a liquidity mining program and they want institutional liquidity, mm-hmm. uh, we can instantly mobilize uh, a couple dozens of uh, institutional liquidity providers, professional liquidity providers, uh, to provide liquidity on these new platforms. Um, so that's another one. Uh, a third one that we're going to launch very soon is along the lines of uh, regulations. Um, I can't say anything about it uh, anything, uh, right now, but it's going to be announced very soon. Um, and it's really about helping um, startups overcome regulatory challenges as well as communicating the space uh, in front of uh, the regulators. It's, it's super timely given uh, what happened last week with uh, BitMEX, with uh, the UK um, banning derivatives for retail. Um, so it's going to be really important over the, over the next couple of years because uh, regulators are looking at this space. And arguably, the regulations were what killed the last bull market. I mean, it was overheated, but that was the that was the catalyst, right? Um, but anyway, so these are the things that the DeFi Alliance is working on, um, and um, I'm just there to, uh, I guess, connect people uh, and provide my insights um, uh, for and to help the startups. And I'm sure that that is extremely valuable to all the startups who are involved. So who else is? As you're saying, it's sort of a loose collection of of founders and helpful individuals and entities in the space. Let's say on like the liquidity side, mm-hmm. in terms of liquidity providers, who's publicly involved with this that you think brings real expertise around liquidity providing to all these DeFi? Because if we're saying liquidity is key to everything yeah. about a DeFi platform, who, who's involved and what do you think they bring to the table? So, uh, in fact, the the founding members of the DeFi Alliance are uh, professional liquidity providers, including uh, Jump, uh, DRW, Cumberland, mm-hmm. and uh, CMT. Uh, so these are all Chicago-based uh, trading firms that have existed for you know at least two decades. Uh, they're trading really, really big volumes around the world. Jump probably trades I don't know maybe five percent of all the the entire futures market in the world. Um, so they're really big, for instance. And DRW is, I guess, less high frequency, but they also tr- they take more risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then CMT also has been around for, for many years and doing really well and very deep in the, in the crypto space. So all these people, what they bring to the table is, um, I guess, knowledge uh, from their uh, market-making activities. Because uh, before these, these people or these entities um, got involved with DeFi, most of the DeFi platforms were, I guess, the founders came from um, non-traditional finance backgrounds. I think most of them are actually not like finance people. So like they're super smart, uh, like I guess tech or you know uh, entrepreneurial background. But um, early on, the products were clearly geared towards um, 
I guess, retail rather than institutional. Mm-hmm. But the thing with DeFi platforms, DeFi products, is that there are often two-sided networks between retail and institutions, right? Right. Uh, between, I guess, a, a, a very good example is ex- exchanges are two-sided networks between the retail takers and the institutional makers, right? So every trade has a taker and a maker. Um, and um, what was missing early on were, were things like a really good API documentation uh, or even APIs for connecting to these uh, DEXs. Mm-hmm. So what these trading platforms provide is uh, expertise in this area uh, to help the startups uh, build better interfaces uh, that are more friendly for uh, institutions to, uh, to trade on. Um, you know, I, I would argue that uh, the DeFi Alliance was partly responsible for, uh, you know, I guess, jump trading connected with, uh, you know, Serum, right? Jump trading was, was probably, um, I guess, or I, I should say Serum was, is the first DeFi platform that Jump is uh, actively engaged in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, for me, that was a really big news. Uh, it was the, the, the first clear sign of a major traditional liquidity provider participating in DeFi. And that's super bullish. Sweet. I mean, I, as somebody who also worked in the Chicago trading space for a number of years, I'm familiar with all these organizations and the expertise that they bring from the traditional finance world is going to be super critical for the emerging market structure in crypto. And I think people, I guess when I speak more to developers in the blockchain space, they have a very nascent understanding of how legacy markets actually function or how liquidity actually functions. And they have a very nascent understanding of things like what is the difference between volume and liquidity? And like, what is the significance of things like order book depth? And there's just such an educational need, uh, but there's also the opportunity, as you're saying, it's a two-way street for developers in the blockchain space uh, to educate legacy players about the opportunities that are available in this emerging asset class, because new assets are constantly being generated with all sorts of interesting programmable qualities when it comes to uh, their inflation schedule or, you know, h- how they get automatically distributed to users of the network, like with these governance tokens, so it's, or, or with liquidity mining. So it's, it's really fascinating to see this emerging ecosystem and to see the embrace of some of these more innovative players from the legacy world. Is there anybody that's not currently involved with the DeFi Alliance? Let, let's not look at the blockchain world, because uh, I know there's tons of interest, but let's look at the legacy world. Are there any partners from the legacy financial world that you think would be really wonderful to include in this alliance that you think would bring a lot of useful insight to the companies building uh, within the accelerator, let's say? Hmm. I would absolutely love to have regulators as Hmm. part of the alliance because I think... um, the biggest challenge ahead for DeFi is regulations. Everything else is a solvable problem. Like all the scalability challenges, all the UX challenges can be solved. It just It's just a matter of time. But regulation is the only thing I, I'm not sure of because a bad regulation can kill an entirely new uh, ecosystem of innovation. You can add friction. And I, like this brings back to, the, to, the, to the, one of the first points that I brought up in this podcast is that DeFi is really about user experience but regulations a bad regulation can kill that user experience it can add friction it can make things a lot harder to use 
So I would love to have someone from the CFTC or um, FinCEN as part of the defiance, to be honest. I think that's a great suggestion, honestly, because as we said, it's a two-way street. And if DeFi people can help educate regulators on what's possible here uh, while they get guidance from the people who are also working to make those regulations, it, it really just is about creating these better communication channels and maybe even most importantly, a, a shared language, uh, yep. because it does feel like regulators use very different language than builders in the DeFi space. And I don't think that the builders in the DeFi space necessarily use the correct language. They could learn a thing or two about how and why the legacy financial system got formed. And then hopefully the regulators could learn a thing or two about how it's been uh, broken uh, and decimated by entrenched interests. I, I think that we can agree there's a lot of potential with DeFi to level the playing field again uh, and to bring a lot of value and wealth to a whole slew of people around the planet and democratize opportunities for uh, for financial well-being. So mm -hmm. with all that said, I think these are wonderful secrets, wonderful insights. Uh, Chow, is there any way that people can continue to receive your insights, let's say in 280 characters or less on a regular <laughs> basis or outside of that, any other channels where you would be really interested uh, for people to follow or where they can find more information, let's say about the DeFi Alliance? Yeah, right now for me personally, it's just Twitter. I used to write long form content, but nowadays I just get too lazy for that. Uh, but for DeFi Alliance, uh, feel free to go to uh, DeFiAlliance.co. Uh, um, so that's where we publish some good content, especially some good uh, uh, podcasts with uh, some of the best investors and founders in this space. So it should be uh, um, educational and interesting for people. Awesome. Well, I, I hope that this was educational and interesting for people. Uh, there was so much good stuff here. I cannot wait to ha have people go hands-on with some of these insights and, and let me know what they thought, and hopefully they can let you know what they thought as well. But in the meantime, Chow, thank you so much for agreeing to share secrets. It's been uh, a wonderful 40 minutes, and I hope we get the opportunity to do it again soon. Thank you as well. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, and make sure to check out all the Secret Network communities that you can see here, including the Secret Chat, the Secret Forum, and of course our Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you the next time we share secrets.